Well, good morning once again. If you have a Bible, please open it to Mark chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 841, 841. And uh, as you may tell, I'm not using a crutch today. And so I'm thankful for that. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate all the prayers and uh, the help over these past three months. It's nice to be able to carry my Bible for myself and uh, do, do a lot of things like that. So, well, once again, it is Father's Day and we are uh, thankful for fathers. I know that to some degree, uh, these holidays, or holidays like these, are kind of arbitrary, right? And the, the more cynical among us might see them as uh, a mere commercial ploy, right, to uh, send more cards or give more gifts or, uh, or, or something of that nature, uh, which may or may not be true, let's be honest. But uh, nevertheless, um, a day like today, uh, we, we can take to, to recognize, uh, to celebrate, and to honor men who have served well in the role of father, Fathers, we know, are indispensable in the home. In the life of the family, a father is necessary. Fathers are necessary in communities. Fathers are necessary in all of society. And the lack thereof has great consequence. Part of the problems we are seeing today in our world is in part due to the lack of fathers. It's true. As, a, as, a, as a, a whole, our country as a whole actually needs a father right now, right? Uh, it, our country needs someone to, to come in and say, you know what, actually, no. <laughs> no, go to your room. No, no, you're, <laughs> stop it, right? Stop doing that. Stop doing that or, or, or else, right? Uh, thankfully, that, that we, ha- we have a father, right? We do have a father that, that in some ways, in some shape and form, does say that to us, right? <laughs> Uh, it, it's through these 66 books. But the way that God actually executes these 66 books is through people, right? Through men, through leaders, uh, through people who, who know God's word and live God's word and, and bring God's law to God's people. And we follow through. We truly need more godly men of conscience and of character. Uh, men who, who know the truth who speak the truth no matter the consequence. Uh, this is not merely some image of a, you know, a, a gun-toting, um, tough guy mentality. That, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about someone who has, has this, a resolute faithfulness to God, governed by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Word of God, and will follow through come hell or high water. That's what we're talking about. That's the kind of men we're talking about. Today, we're going to learn about two different men in our passage in chapter 6. Two men who faced pressure to act. Two men who, who um, when, the, when the moment came for them to act, both acted, one faithfully and one not. One maintained his integrity, he spoke the truth, and he suffered the consequence in this life. The other violated his conscience, rejected the truth, and suffered an eternal consequence. Last week, Pastor Chris preached the first 13 verses of chapter 6. And in chapters, verses 7 through 13, Jesus sent out his apostles to, to go into uh, the world. 
And as they went, and as Jesus and his works became more and more known, word got out about Jesus. Word started to spread, even though there were times where Jesus was telling people, don't say anything, right? Don't you tell anybody, <laughs> right? Jesus, it was starting to become known. He was becoming popular. Uh, things were becoming heard of, of, his, of his acts. And in verse 14, we learn that the, the word has gone so far as to reach the ear of a ruler named Herod. Look at verse 14. Herod, King Herod, heard of it, what Jesus was doing, for Jesus' name had become known. Now, now Mark uses the word king here, and he uses it a couple more times in this passage, but he actually uses it, um, it, it's more sarcastic than it is actual. Herod was not an actual king. Herod wanted to be a king. Herod had uh, the people in his uh, authority, in his district or his territory, uh, refer to him as a king, but he was not a king. He was what's called a tetriarch which a tetrarch is someone who is a ruler over a fourth of a, of a kingdom or a fourth of a territory. And so when his father died, the, his territory, uh, Herod the Great, was divided between uh, three of the brothers. And Herod Antipas ruled over a, a fourth of that territory, Galilee and Perea. Um, the, the, the Roman emperor Augustus would not recognize Herod as, as king either. He was, he was merely a, a tech. A te- uh, whatever the word was, a ruler. <laughs> and and here, here's the point of the, what, why do we care about what Herod wanted to be called? Because it's telling something, something about Herod. Herod wanted the respect of people without being worthy of the respect of people. He wanted the authority without being worthy of the authority. He, he wanted the power without having the character to, to hold that power. Right? It's telling us something about Herod. Well, the word became known of Jesus to Herod. Uh, in verse 14, we find out what Herod thinks about Jesus. Uh, verse, continue verse 14 through 16. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous works, powers are at work in him. Verse 15, but others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like, the one, of, like one of the prophets of, of old. Verse 16, and when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So Mark here lists three options for what the people thought about this Jesus, right? The first is that it's John the Baptist raised. The second was Elijah. And the third was a prophet of old. And you'll, you'll recognize that all three of those options are wrong, right? Nobody got it right. Failed. The whole class fails, right? All across the board, everyone gets it wrong. Uh, Herod heard about Jesus, and, and he believed something about Jesus. He believed that he was related to, or actually he was, John the Baptist, who had come back to life after what? After he, Herod, had him beheaded. But what we do see that Herod seems to have gotten right is that he's identifying John with Jesus. Now, Jesus was not John, but Jesus is identified with John in the sense that what did, what did John come to do? John came to be a forerunner of Jesus. John came with a message of repentance that Jesus continued. Jesus' opening words were the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The, the connection between John and Jesus was actually not that far off. It, it was right, not that John was Jesus, but that Jesus followed John and was greater than John. Herod 
was interested. He was intrigued by Jesus as he was with John, but would not and did not hear the message of either John or Jesus, as we will see through the rest of the narratives. It's shocking, though, to think that Herod could believe, listen to what Herod believed. Herod believed that a beheaded man came back to life. That's what he believed about Jesus. But he wouldn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Every belief system requires faith. Every belief system requires faith. Christianity requires faith. Atheism requires faith. To believe that a beheaded man came back to to, to life requires faith. The question isn't about faith. The question isn't, do you have faith? Everybody has faith in something. The question is, in what do you have faith? Is there any good evidence to have faith in that? On On what authority would Herod believe that this could actually happen? Why would he think this is actually possible? Why would he ever think that? Well, verse 17 through 29 fills us in a little bit more, fills the story in a little bit more. Mark wants the readers to understand what John the Baptist went through, what Herod just said. Herod just said that I had, uh, I, I beheaded John the Baptist. And so verses 17 through 29 are a flashback. They're a flashback to events that, that occurred maybe a year ago. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, we learned that John the Baptist was arrested. Now here, Mark is telling us about what happened after his arrest. What, what were the events that uh, followed that arrest? Uh, we said already that John was a, a forerunner of, of Jesus' ministry, uh, but one, one writer, Danny Aiken, recognizes that he's also a forerunner of Jesus' death, as we'll see here in this passage. So John becomes a target, right? John became a target of Herod and Herodias, who we'll learn about in a moment, as he spoke out against their unlawful marriage. And as he did that, he was then arrested, imprisoned, and ultimately he was killed. Uh, this morning, as we walk through this passage, we want to see what lessons uh, faithful Christians can learn. Uh, we're going to learn about the story as it is, but, but what's the takeaway for me today? How, how, do, how do I consider John the Baptist and what he went through as a Christian? Well, we're going to look at four lessons, and the first comes in the first uh, four verses uh, that we'll look at now, verses 17 through 20, and we'll see that faithful Christians can expect opposition. Look at verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his uh, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Yeah, you read that sentence right. Uh, Here we learn that Herod Antipas was married to Herodias. Now this story uh, gets a little convoluted. So I've supplied you with a family tree. Okay, so here we go. In the middle of the page is Herodias, right? This is the, the daughter of um, Aristobulus, up here on your left, Aristobulus, who was also a son of Herod the Great, okay? Herod the Great had multiple sons, and we learn that two of the other sons were Herod Antipas and Philip the First. So this made Herodias, the daughter of Aristobulus, it made Herodias the sister-in-law, excuse me, the niece of, we'll get there in a second, the niece of 
Herod Antipas and Philip. Okay, uh, Herod Antipas, we find out. Um, well, let's let's. Uh, okay, so Herod, Herodias, we, we already learned, was married to Philip, right? So the next part is this: that Herod Antipas persuades Herodias to divorce Philip and ordered her to marry him. Okay, so Philip married his brother's daughter, right? So he married his niece, right? And so then Herod Antipas convinces the niece, uh, who was then his sister-in-law, to become his wife, right? And we said this before, but you think your family tree is jacked up, right? <laughs> like we all got stuff, right? We all got stuff. Most of us don't have this stuff, right? And you can thank the Lord for that, right? Okay, so th- this is um, crazy town, right? It is, it is uh, un- unreal. But, but Herod Antipas uh, wants to, to marry his sister-in-law or niece, what, however you want, want to do that. But, but the, the point is, is this. <laughs> All right, let's just get to the point. Uh, the point is, is this. This is obviously immoral. It's obviously incestuous. But it was illegal. <laughs> it was illegal against Jewish law. It was a violation of God's law. And we can look at that in Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. So John, John doesn't let it go. Here the ruler of this territory is in an incestual relationship with his, you pick the term, sister-in-law or niece, right? And, and even if it wasn't that, it was adultery. It was someone else's wife. There, there are myriads of problems with this, this situation. And what, Paul, what John was saying in verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. That, that term, um, or that's, that phrase, had been saying, that means he didn't say it one time. He had been saying it. You, you know those people who keep reminding you of things? You're kind of like, shut up, right? That's what, that's what was happening here, right? John kept telling Herod, this isn't right. You're, this is not okay. You, this is not lawful. This is against God's law. But neither Herod nor Herodias seemed to care about God's law. They didn't. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And yet they did care that John was confronting them. So verse 17 says, so for the sake of Herodias, Herod acted. And he arrested and imprisoned John. And again, here's a glimpse of Herod. His wife's nagging him, and what does he do? He goes and he arrests the guy. Not necessarily because he wanted to, but because of his wife. Again, this tells us something about Herod's willingness to compromise in order to please others. We'll see more on this later. Well, John spoke the truth and was unjustly imprisoned. Right? That's what we see. And faithful Christians can expect opposition. Listen, doing the right thing does not always mean that the right thing will be done to you. Christian, there is injustice in the world. You can do everything right and it still not go well. And they say, well, wait a second. God told me to obey him and, and then bad things are happening to me. Read your Bible. If someone told you that the, the, living the Christian life means that everyone agrees with you and, and everyone will think you're great, you have not read the Bible, or they have not read the Bible. The Bible is filled with suffering. It, it's filled with people doing the right thing and being treated poorly for it. 
Years later, just like John, Jesus would experience a miscarriage of justice. He would encounter a, a cowardly ruler also named Pilate who caved under the pressure of people. And he too, Jesus too, would be treated cruelly. We can know that faithful Christians can be expected, can expect to be treated ungodly by those who are ungodly. We ought not to be surprised by opposition when we take a stand for Christ. Some of us have lived our life long enough in, in a context where we've not paid a price for what we believe. We've not paid a price for Christ. We haven't. It's, it's been relatively easy, we might say. Those days may be coming to an end. Well, not only should we um, expect opposition. Number two, faithfulness requires a cost. Look at verses 19 and 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him, that's John, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. That last sentence is, Herod heard him gladly. So imprisonment wasn't enough for Herodias, right? It wasn't good enough just to, to stop him from or take him out of a public. Uh, she wanted him dead. Right? And this is one way to deal with detractors, right? You kill them, right? This is what, what happens. Uh, and this is what Herodias wanted to do. Only, the only problem for Herodias is that she doesn't have the power to do it. She can't actually do it. And she actually can't get Herod to do it at this point because Herod, verse 20, tells us that he feared John. Herod actually recognized something about John. He recognized that he was righteous and he was holy. Here this ungodly ruler recognizes that John is righteous and that he is holy. Herod has a conflict on his hands, not only with Herodias, but with himself. He's perplexed by John. Right? We, we learned there's this tension that he has. Like, here's this guy, and he's righteous and he's holy. I don't like what he's saying. My wife really doesn't like what he's saying, but I don't know what to do with him. I don't know how to handle it. Verse, uh, Matthew chapter 14 does tell us, though, that, that um, Herod wanted him dead too. Now, Mark doesn't record that, but Matthew does. But, but here, he, he wanted him dead, but he also feared him. Right? So he was afraid, he was afraid of John. Uh, James would call this a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't know what to do with, with all of this. So even though John is calling him out, Herod at least recognized that John was different and that he was righteous, and that he was, was holy. Uh, he seemed to be haunting um, Herod um, because of, uh, of his sin. He's stirring him in some ways. One writer says, goodness is terrifying to evil. Why, does, why do evil people care about the righteous? Right? Why, why do the evil care? Why do the ungodly care that, that we don't agree with them? Because goodness terrifies evil doesn't mean that I'm good. We're, we're talking about the biblical godliness of who God is lived out in the Christian life. Herod thought enough to keep John safe, we learn, and was glad to hear him. Right? So even he's having these internal conflicts, he still wants to hear from John. It's a very strange uh, situation. But what we unfortunately come to understand is that Herod will, will hear him all day, but he won't take the next step of faith. And he never did. We read the whole Gospels. We, we learn that even at the time of Jesus' death, Herod is involved and Herod does not believe in Jesus. The cost of faithfulness may mean that the world hates you. It may mean that they plot to destroy you. 
a Christian, you should expect a cost for faithfulness. John counted the cost. For, for John, uh, he recognized the gross immorality of Herod's marriage and he spoke out, even at great cost to himself. He saw it as a transgression from, from God's law and therefore it should be called to what? Called to repentance. And so we ask ourselves, what, what is it for us? What's, what's, the, what's the thing that will force us to speak out? What, what's the thing that, that will force us to say, no, no, not okay. Bridge too far, step too far, you've crossed the line. What, what is it for the Christian where, where we, we will wake up and actually speak up? What, what is it for us today in 2021? What is it for us who live in America? There is an increasing normalization of ungodly and unbiblical behavior in our culture. The culture of our country and the culture of the world, really. But let's be honest, this did not happen overnight. This is not the fault of a president. It's not the fault of any president primarily. This is a decade-long movement. Uh, even in my short lifetime, I can look back and, and, and we can chronicle the decline. We can pinpoint the, the moments when culture made choices that has led us to where we are today. And if you think this is the floor, it is not the floor. The degradation will continue, save for any intervention from God. We are beginning the degradation. It, is, it will continue. Romans chapter 1 tells us just that. But to up, uphold the biblical mandates... Uh, that's necessary, right? But it takes, it, it takes an amount of courage, amount of um, conscious uh, awareness of the pleasure of God over the pleasure of man. It will not be welcomed. It will not be welcomed in our culture. It will not be welcomed in our current moments. It will not be. You, you need to know that. <laughs> If you don't know that already, you need to know that. We are living in the midst of a moral revolution. That's not hyperbole. It, it is occurring. It has been occurring. Uh, there's a British theologian named Theo Hobbes who describes how a moral revolution works. He's, he, he can boil it down to, to three, uh, three stages. Uh, the first is what was condemned is now celebrated. So what once society or culture condemned, now they celebrate. Okay, that's step one. That's stage one. And maybe if you're a thinking person this morning, maybe you can start to think, think that through a little bit. Okay, what, what was once condemned that, that now is being celebrated? Time probably does not permit for us to go through all of those things this morning, right? But, but we know that that's happening, right? Okay, so, so step two or stage two. What was celebrated is now condemned. Right? So this is the movement. What was once condemned is now celebrated. What was once celebrated is now condemned. Right? We're feeling that. And number three, those who will not celebrate must be condemned. And here's the kicker, right? That's the kicker. The, la the last one's the kicker. We want to say, well, you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. Right? That, that's how we think maybe society can agree to disagree. Nope, it's not how it works. 
There is no agree to disagree. It's get on or you are fill in the blank of any terrible term that, that you want to call someone, right? If you don't agree with, with the movements, with the revolution, then you will be condemned. Now, if this does not accurately depict our current moment, I don't know how else we could describe it, right? That is our moment. This is our moment. In just this microcosm, John the Baptist in Herod is showing us this, this similar situation that we find ourselves in, this gross immorality, this celebration in approval of what God's, uh, uh, despising of God's design. And what does this righteous and holy man do? He's, he speaks the truth. <laughs> no, that's not okay. It's not okay. And today, there is blatant disregard for the design of God. In, er- in areas of, of marriage, in areas of hu- uh, human sexuality, there's blatant disregard. And at some point, Christians must take a stand to say, actually, it does matter. God's design actually matters. It's actually how civilization works. It's actually how families work. It's actually how we understand the world. It's actually how God made the world. Now, there's some who might think this is just a culture war that we have with people who disagree with us. I can assure you it's more than a culture war. It is a worldview issue. It is fundamental. It is foundational to society, to to civilization. We're not talking about things that, that don't matter. We're talking about the things that underpin the very life that we live, our country and in all countries for that matter. And some might look at this and say, well, maybe we take a pragmatic approach to these, these issues. Maybe we don't be too hard. Maybe, maybe we show love. Maybe we don't burn the bridges. Maybe we don't judge. Okay, Sh- show me someone who did that. John didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. To those in sin, we are to call to repentance from sin. Why? Because we hate them? Because we're a bigot? No. Because we love God and we love them. Because we believe that God's design is actually how human flourishing works. It's not just to to meet some sort of a rule or some sort of a standard, but it's to honor God because in God we know that there's abundant life to be had and outside of it is death, that the narrow way leads to life and the wide road leads to destruction. That's why. Not because we want to be right, but because God's word tells us what is right. We're not so smart that we figured this thing out. We're just following the instructions This is not we're better than someone else. That's not what this is. It's not that my idea is better than your idea. It's that God has laid this stuff down. It's not up for interpretation. And if you think, by the way, that you can just love everybody into agreements, I don't know what you... you, Be prepared to give up every absolute truth you have ever held. 
Because it will never be enough. It's full agreement or nothing. That is the moment. Brothers and sisters, that's the moment. There's a point where a Christian has to say, actually, no, I can't go along with this anymore. In the words of John Piper, to celebrate sin is to sin. And you're not supposed to sin. So you might say, well, that's their life. Love is love. You can love whoever you want. To celebrate sin is to sin. It matters. Let's move on. Verse 21 through 28 tells us that conduct reveals character. We already saw how this worked with John. Verses 18 and 20, this man of conscience spoke the truth of God that terrified a ruler. Here we see this man of moral courage, of, of clear conscience, a, a man of, uh, of the Spirit. He gave his life for the message of repentance. He gave his life for it. He believed in it so strong that he was willing to, to die. He was willing to stand up to the ruler. But John's character is not the only one revealed in this passage. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. An opportunity came. Now, in the, uh, another version of the Bible, the NASB, it says a strategic day came. Strategic day for who? For Herodias. That's who. Uh, there's a quote. You've probably heard this quote. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. You ever heard that? We might say that jokingly about people we know, but, but this is really true of Herodias, right? She did not appreciate what John had done. She wanted more punishment than Herod was willing to give, and so she devises a plan. And we begin to see, uh, as we have, but continue to see Herodias' character. She leaves no doubt about the content of her character. She is a ruthless, cunning, conniving woman. She is a Jezebel-like figure. And that is anything but a compliment if you don't know who Jezebel is. She cared more about herself. She cared more about herself than, than anyone around her. As we said before, she didn't have the power to do what she wanted to do. And so she had to manipulate her husband and use her daughter in order to get what she wanted. Her grudge against John, against her hatred for righteousness, led her to devise a plan to kill John. And so the opportunity comes when Herod throws himself a birthday party which, I mean, that's one way to do it, right? If no one else is going to throw you a party, I'll throw myself a party, right? So he throws himself a party, invites all these, these guys over, and he's having a party. Given the context of what we know about Herod, of what we know about the immorality, we can rightly conclude that as this party went on, as drinking continued, it gradually degraded, right? You can probably picture that. And this, in this compromised setting, Herodias' plan was initiated. Verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Now, <clears throat> you might have gone to like a ballet or something for little children and thought, oh, that's cute, they're dancing. That is not what Herodias was doing, okay? Let's just clarify that. Uh, she was doing something in such a way that was pleasing pagan men. We don't really need to go much further than that, but that was the setting, right? Now remember, Herodias, this is Herodias' daughter, which that makes her Antipas' stepdaughter, right? Or great-niece. Some, some say she was a young teen. Some say she might have been 12 years old, right? This is a girl. This is a girl dancing before grown men and them liking it. 
depravity runs deep. The trap was laid and Herod, Herod fell for it. Verse 20, rest of verse 22. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And you can imagine this setting, right? All the guys are there. This girl is dancing for them and they're all excited about it. And he, he goes into this, I'll give you whatever you want. Yay, give her whatever you want. Up to half my kingdom. Hey, yeah, well, more, 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 right? More, right? This is trying to impress his friends. This is Herod being an idiot again. Now, now the language here of, of half my kingdom, that's, that should be familiar language if you're a Bible reader. That takes us back to the book of Esther. When the king says to Esther, just that, up to half my kingdom, I'll give you. The folly of Herod can only be explained as a weak man trying to impress his friends. But what would happen next? The girl goes to her mother, verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? Apparently she wasn't quite in on the plan, right? She didn't quite know what was gonna happen after she danced. And so she gets the question that Herodias was looking for and Herodias tells her what to ask for. The rest of verse 24, the head of John the Baptist. One commentator says that Herodias felt the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. She believed killing John would solve the problem. Right? That's what she saw. She saw the conflict was with John. She believed that if she killed John, her problems would be solved. Any thinking person knows her problem was not with John. Her problem was with God. Killing John would not kill the truth that John spoke. So here's the reality. Even today, Christians are killed. They are being killed in an attempt to stop the message of the gospel. There are places around the world that are hostile to Christianity, so much so that if someone were to preach the gospel, they could be killed. Why? In order to try to stop the gospel. But do you know that in the places where the gospel is most opposed, the gospel actually is flourishing? that the kingdom's being built in the darkest places. You can't stop the gospel. The gospel is not stopped by, people, uh, by, by being killed. People cannot kill in order to stop the gospel. In fact, Christians, um, Christians don't kill to advance the gospel. They are being killed to advance the gospel. Uh, the early church father, Tertullian, wrote this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Listen, some will rejoice. Some will hear the good news and rejoice. Some will reject and they won't care. Some will be afraid like Herod, but others will want to destroy you. Know that. Know that now. Count the cost now. It's coming. Nevertheless, Herodias finally got her what she wanted. Verse 25, and she came in, that's the girl came in, immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want, to give, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, in case we're feeling sorry for the daughter, she adds her own little sadistic detail on the end of this. Right? On, on a platter, that's not what her mom said. Uh, she added this uh, little sadistic phrase on, on the end here. And verse 26 tells us about the king, Herod. And Herod was exceedingly sorry. Didn't see that one coming. Whoops. Herod's conscience here is torn, right? He, we, we already know that he, he believed that John was righteous and he was holy and he wasn't going to kill him. Now, he had made this stupid oath 
And now he's, he's stuck. He knew that John did not deserve death, but his wife had deceived him for her own personal retribution. Um, good choice in, in a wife there. But, but what would Herod do, right? What would Herod do? He's in this conflict. What would happen next? Would he stand up and do the right thing? Right? Would he say, no, that's crazy. Anything else? <laughs> no, no, he didn't do that. He had made an oath. His friends are all sitting there. He's not going to lose face. Remember who this guy is. He won't lose face. And so unwilling to lose face, what does he do? Verse 26, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. Herod's character is clearly revealed in this story, right? He is um, someone who caved under the pressure. He complied with an evil plan. He, was, he capitulated to, to Herodias. He feared Herodias more than he feared God. He bound himself to a foolish oath in order to please others, in order to be thought well of, even at the cost of someone else's life. And though Herod was a ruler, positionally, he was a ruler, he was a spineless coward, or in the words of C.T. Studd, a chocolate soldier. You like that language? A chocolate soldier who melts under the heat. He was a man, in C.S. Lewis's words, a man without a chest. Right? No, no virtue, no, no character. A man who could be bought off. He forfeited his integrity in order to please other people. He saved his power but lost his soul. He was more interested in what he had, his power, than in what he could receive, eternal life through repentance and faith. He would not give up what he had in order to receive what he could not lose. This is the description of a man of the flesh. The passage ends in verse 29. And his disciples, this is John's disciples, heard of it. And they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now we could come to the end of this story and say, well, that ended badly. See, this, this is why. This is why you don't speak out, right? What a tragedy. What good did that do? He burned all those bridges with Herodias and then they, they just killed him. He shouldn't have been so adamant about that sin, right? He should have been a little less unlike the world and a little more like the world. Maybe he could have reached them. Well, maybe if he would just love them a little bit more, they would have listened. And if you think that we can bite our tongue long enough or not rock the boat or stay quiet, and that's what's going to bring someone to Christ, you have misunderstood what the gospel does. The gospel is confrontational. The gospel confronts us. Yes, the gospel is love, but the gospel confronts our sin. Why do we need to be loved? Because we are at odds with God, because we are his enemies. So the gospel is confrontational to us to those who don't know him. We could try to get through life unscathed by the world, but really the goal of the Christian life isn't that. The goal of the Christian life is to get through life unspotted from the world. James chapter one. Listen, not everyone is going to like us. Jesus says this in Luke chapter six, verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. <laughs> If everybody speaks well of you, you might not be doing anything, right? You might just be pleasing everybody. If you're upsetting somebody, there's a good chance you might be doing something actually right. Now, don't take that too far. So, brothers and sisters, following Jesus and receiving the approval of the world do not go together. Following Jesus and obeying the Bible is offensive to the world. 
It is. It is at odds with the world. You can't do both. They're actually antithetical to one another. You can't do it. It is the responsibility of the faithful to obey, to rebuke sin. J.C. Ryle writes this. If, if he believes, this is the, the faithful Christian, believes a man is injuring his soul, he ought surely to tell him so. If he loves him truly and tenderly, he ought to let him, not let him ruin himself unwarned. So the loving thing to do is actually tell somebody when they're in sin. The loving thing to actually do is to call someone to repentance. Church discipline, confrontation is actually an act of love. And we need a reclamation of men and women of conscience, of integrity, of moral fiber, and strength of character, empowered by the spirit of the living God in order that more of us more people in our society, more people in our town, more people in our country would come to see the beauty of God's design. Will there be conflict? Of course there'll be conflict. There always is conflict, but it is our duty and the results are up to God. Will we be thought of well? Well thought of? No. We probably will not be well thought of. Right? But know this, that nothing done in faith is ever wasted. It's never wasted. Your faithfulness is never wasted. John's life was not a waste. You might say, well, man, if, if he wouldn't have burned those bridges, how many more years could he have you've gone on and, and told many other people about, about Jesus? And if that's how you think about faithfulness, that's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is, is to do what God has called you to do when he calls you to do it, no matter the consequence of it. The testimony of John was a man who lost his head but kept his integrity, who, who lost his life but kept his soul. John's life was ended, but the message was not ended, nor was the impact. As we said, G John was the forerunner of Jesus. He came with a message of repentance, which Jesus continued, and the followers of Jesus continues till, still today. Like Abel in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, though dead, he still speaks. Though John is dead, he still speaks. The message of repentance goes on. The faithfulness of our lives, in our life, speaks long after our life. The loss of John's life was not a sign of failure, but of faithfulness. He spoke the truth. He spoke the truth to power. He did not count his life precious to himself or any value to himself, only in the words of the Apostle Paul, only to finish the course in the ministry to which he had been called. And so why would we do that? Why would we call out sin? Why would you ever do that? And you, you, see, you hear this, you're like, I don't want to die, I don't want to be beheaded, I don't want to be imprisoned. Why would I ever do that? Why would you ever do that? What is your alternative? What's your alternative to not doing it? Stay quiet, live a comfortable life. What kind of life is that? That's focused now, right? The focus then is now. The reason we don't is because we're focused now. But here's the, the great truth. Lasting reward is coming. 
lasting reward is coming. If you and I are looking for reward here and now, we may find it, but that's all we'll find. For the Christian, the best is yet to come. Faithfulness will be rewarded on the other side. Affliction now, here and now, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that will one day be revealed. And so we can understand this with J.C. Ryle. I love this quote. Heaven will make amends for all. Nothing is wasted and reward is coming. Heaven will make amends for all. Now that's not consolation. That's not consolation. That's reorienting our desires. It's reorienting our expectations. It's reorienting our thinking in our heart towards what matters. It's not a consolation prize to say reward is waiting. That's not consolation. That is the prize. Don't settle for lesser things. Nothing can compare this, all of it, here and now, all of it, will not last. The approval of men will not last. The the opinion of others will not last. The injustice that occurs will not last. The physical suffering and pain will not last. The persecution and opposition will not last. So to forsake the truth for temporary relief today is foolish. It's foolishness for a Christian to give up Faithfulness, to give up truth in order to appease people now. The only approval we are looking for is the approval of the Father. The day when we walk, walk to see him, the day we wake up on the shore and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the day we're living for. It's not whether your, your neighbor thinks you're a bigot or not. It's not whether the, the, the groups in our country now are, agree with us or don't agree with us. That's not what you're living for, Christian. Heaven will make amends. All will be made right. All wrongs will be made right. Therefore, we can live faithfully with confidence because of who God is. Herod, Herod gave up, right? He violated his conscience He buckled under pressure. He kept his position, but he lost his soul. While John maintained his integrity, lost his head, but kept his soul. You will never regret faithfulness. No matter the outcome, you'll never regret it. You'll only regret faithlessness. At the end of our lives, we're not going to look back at our life and say, man, I really wish I was more faithless. (laughs) No. We'll remember the times where where, where we, we buckled May God help us. What will be said of us? Here's the good news. Jesus did more than John. Jesus not only was faithful, but he fulfilled the law, the whole law, perfectly. He died the death that you and I deserved in order that we could be ransomed, in order that our souls might not be lost, in order that we could enjoy life now and life to come. And in light of what Jesus has done for us, may we come to him in repentance and faith and find life. And may we walk with him in faith, enabled by his spirit. May it be said of us that God has found us faithful. Pray with me. Father,
We are living in unique times. For some of us, we are experiencing pressures and conflicts with our, our faith like we've never experienced before. Father, there is a, a movement, a, a pressure a, um, to, to capitulate to the world, to go along, to go along, to get along. God, thank you for the example of, of John the Baptist that did no such thing. Thank you for the example of Jesus, the life of Jesus that tells us the same. We may consider those two examples and say, well, I'm not John the Baptist and I'm not Jesus. Father, we thank you for the spirit of God that you've given to us to teach us, to empower us, to follow you. So I pray now that by your grace, from this room, faithful Christians will go into the world and live faithfully to your word that will speak truth, that will graciously and lovingly call people to repentance of sin, faith in Christ, and life everlasting. This is the message. This is the message our world needs. This is the message our culture needs. May God, may God, may you help us, God, to share it. You give us the boldness to do it this week. With our eyes fixed on you, God, send us out, we pray. In Jesus' name.